Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Who is that man with the jaunty hat and the deep, rich voice and a humor that knows no bounds? Oh, of course. You know, we all know. It's Robert Picardo, whose resume is packed full of amazing film and television projects, whose love of space exploration and science is contagious, and whose friendship means a lot. He and I have played doctors in a universe with no boundaries. Over the years, I've grown very fond of him. He's one of the more creative actors I know. I have met and think highly of his daughters, and he is indeed a great dad role model. Join me today in our conversation as we float downstream with some fond memories, stories, and, yes, no surprise, even a couple of jokes. Hope you enjoy part one with my guest, Robert Picardo, of Investigates, Who Do You Think You Are? Well, hello, Robert Picardo. How are you? Hello, Gates McFadden. I am very, very well. (laughs) Thank you for asking. It's nice to hear. It's nice to hear your voice. You have one of the more distinctive voices, I would say, in the Trek world. Thank you. I appreciate that. because It's a compliment because I used to say that uh, the three things you needed to be a successful Trek actor was uh, interesting hair, a good voice, and a good butt. <laughs> uh-oh. Uh-oh. Which you have all three, by the way. I don't know if that's an appropriate <laughs> no, way to no, open no, the no. show. No, no, I, 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 now I'm feeling really uh, insecure, Robert. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it doesn't have to be your own hair. And, and I have no hair, but that qualifies as interesting hair, I think. Okay, good. Um, and so I can be know, thinking but, of someone else's butt and not mine necessarily. Yeah, exactly. You could be, you could <laughs> okay, be working, <laughs> you could be working with a stunt butt, for example. <laughs> so I want to, there's a lot of things that I want to talk to you about. I want to ask how your forefathers and foremothers came to the United States. We're starting before you were even born. All right. Um, all four of my grandparents emigrated from southern Italy uh, over the course of the, uh, during the first two decades of the 20th century. I should remember exactly the year, um, but I mean, it's, I believe it's between like, 08 and say 1915, something like that. In that area, all four of them arrived. And uh, I'm trying to remember if they were both married. I know that my father's father and mother were already married and I believe had no children at that time. And uh, Had he fought in the war? That grandfather fought in World War I. Probably not, or probably he was uh, probably leaving to get not, away yeah. from it. Because it was 1914 was the war. I only know about my father's generation, not my grandpa, regarding the war. How old was he when he... I believe he was in his early 20s and his bride was probably 18. And my father's father died in the great influenza pandemic at about 30, 32 years old. So it left my, um, my father's mother, Caterina Gargano Picardo, 
she left her with um, four young children, of which my dad was the oldest. So he had to become, you know, uh, he had to drop out of uh, a school at, I think, ninth grade and support the family. And what did he do? Uh, my father wanted to be in business. I, I know that I don't I don't even know what he did uh, in his teens to support the family. I know that he mm. at different times sold insurance, but he wanted to be in um, he wanted to own his own uh, his own business. So he opened a single storefront furniture store in the Italian neighborhood of um, uh, in uh, Northwest Philadelphia near the then Connie Mack Stadium. And then he opened a bigger store. So we had a, a we had a, a, a you know, a, a fairly large, only one location uh, furniture store called Picardo's Furniture. Um, I, I didn't really, I, I should do a little tiny bit more about uh, Southern Italy. My, my, my father's family comes from a town called Monte Corvino Rovello near Salerno and near Naples in, uh, in Southern Italy. I visited a couple of times. I have wonderful relatives there and half, about half, if you look in the phone book, you'll see about 250 Picardos and you'll see about 250 Picardies with an I. And growing up, I was told that my family name, my father's name was really Picardy, but he changed it to Picardo, which always sounded a little fishy to me. Now, bear in mind, uh, my my dad also passed away at a young age. So he, he, he was, I was only nine years old when he died. So I never got to ask the Picardo versus Picardi question. And I heard stories my whole life that that he had changed it. Well, it turns out that there are both names in the town. And, and uh, when I asked my cousin, Michele Picardi, he's a cousin, but his name ends in an I, uh, I said, why are there both Picardos and Picardis in the town? And he looked at, he, apparently no one had thought to ask this question before, but he, ha, he was, had been a mayor uh, of the town for a number of years. And uh, so he had access to the, uh, to the city records and he looked it up. And in fact, Picardo was the older name and it was misrecorded about a hundred years ago. They misrecorded someone as Picardi and then they became that's how that's how the name bifurcated about a hundred years ago. It sounds very fishy to me, but you know, when you're sitting around listening to your uh, to your cousin speak Italian and your daughter is translating for you because she speaks much better Italian than I understand, uh, you know, and you're drinking wine and enjoying the food, uh, it doesn't matter whether the story is true or not. It just is. It's all part of a wonderful evening. That you know, what's interesting listening to just your talking about your. Uh, grandfather starting a furniture store, correct? Or was that your father? Oh, that was my father. Move. That was my father. My grandfather, um, yeah, I don't even know what my grandfather, I, I know that one of my grandparents delivered fruit, that he that he sold fruit and carried it to the wealthy families outside uh, mainline Philadelphia. He delivered fruit. So what I was going to say is when I did Brent's podcast, you know, his uh, family has a furniture store in it. I don't know if you guys have ever talked about this, oh, but that's it's right. very We funny. did talk about that. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. We did talk about that. I, I'd forgotten. Now, his uh, families got into vintage furniture first uh, as opposed to manufacturing their own, which I suppose is what most people would do when you don't have the funds to start a manufacturing company of furniture. But that's really interesting. So it must have been something that... You know, a lot of people who were bringing their um, 
all of their possessions on a boat to come to a new country, they obviously are going to need things. And so it makes sense to go into something where it's like vintage furniture. Well, my uh, my father only sold a, a furniture that was manufactured, I think all of it probably in the United States at that time, name brands like Drexel and stuff like that, that I guess they're still around. I don't know. So he... Uh, he sold furniture and appliances and old console stereos. Remember when stereos were one giant piece of furniture with the yeah, turntable yeah. And, and the amplifier that had vacuum tubes in it and all that. So he sold console stereos, refrigerators, washing machines, uh, bedding even on the second floor and carpeting. I mean, it was an entire home furnishing store, not just furniture. Oh, that's interesting and, because that's more like know, Ikea or something. That's actually quite... Uh, innovative and different, perhaps. That's, I uh, think so, that he had absolutely everything. And I used to go there yeah. as a kid and, and assemble the kitchen the kitchen sets, you know, back when there were, you know, laminate kitchen tables with chrome legs and all that. I would bolt I the one. chairs together and put the bases, flip the table and put the table together. I wasn't, my brother had the, um, ironically, because you would think of me being in show business all these years as being a salesperson or having a sales personality. I wasn't very good as a kid. My brother, five years older than me, Joe, was uh, was the natural salesman in the family. So he worked at the store and I was, uh, uh, being five years younger, I swept up and I assembled things. <laughs> yeah. Did any of the women in your family on either side, were they um, career people or were they mainly supporting the, the family and uh, uh, doing the the work of keeping the house household running? Well, my, uh, my mother has a very interesting uh, history. Uh, she did graduate high school, unlike my dad. She wanted very much to go to pharmacy school. That's what she wanted to do. But her father told her that uh, it uh, basically made it clear that women, he wasn't going to pay for, uh, or he didn't think that a woman needed to be educated beyond high school because, you know, she was going to get married or whatever. So and I think that hurt her, disappointed her, but so she never went. She had to work straight out of high school. She worked at a, at a, um, a men's shirt uh, factory. It was a family called Druding that lived, I think, in the neighborhood where my mother grew up. And uh, she had been very, uh, she was very close. It was primarily a Jewish neighborhood, my understand, more than an Italian. And some of her best friends were, um, were these people that owned the shirt factory, the Drudings, and she worked there. That was straight out of high school. I don't remember how exactly she met my dad or exactly when they married. I think they married a little bit older. I think my dad may have been maybe 30 and my mother in her later 20s, which I think was probably pretty old back in the day. And as I said, my dad first sold insurance, then opened the store. But here's what happened. The only thing that really went terribly, terribly wrong in my childhood is that my father died without any notice. He had a, he had heart failure that may or may not have been a result of, a, of an of a, an aortic dissection. I don't know why I heard that, but I believe that may be what happened, which is what I think happened to a uh, wonderful comedian, John Ritter. There's no real warning to it. Um, you get a break in the wall of the heart uh, that, and the blood starts to fill fill in that crack. It, it's it, the blood uh, fills in and actually puts pressure on the heart. Your kind, your heart is kind of squeezed by its own 
blood pressing down on this way has been explained to me. In any case, my father died shockingly, suddenly, suddenly without warning at age 54 years old. I was nine and my mother, who had been a long time um, homemaker at that point, hadn't worked since they were first married, um, certainly not since the first child was born. There she was with four children, the oldest of which was, I guess, 17 or 18, my, my older sister, Kathy, then my brother, Joe, five years younger, then my sister, Marianne, 18 months older than me, and me at age nine. And suddenly she just walked in and took over a business that she knew nothing about. She just went in overnight after the funeral and, uh, and took over the, uh, the, the family business, which is an amazing, uh, my mother, I mean, is more, uh, the older I get and the longer she's gone, the more I'm amazed at what my mother did. She never had a date with another man. She, she had me at very quite late in life. We were never allowed to ask my mother's age during those years. Um, but, um, I kind of figured out that, uh, uh, because I was nine and I found out later she had me at age 43 or 44. She must've been about 53 when my dad passed and she began a new career at that time. And yeah, that's uh, pretty amazing. amazing. That is really, and the other thing that is similar between you and Brent is his mother had to do the same thing with two small children. She took over that business, the furniture business and uh, grew it and built it and kept it, kept the family going, which is pretty amazing. I think women often had to do that when it was wartime, uh, when there was a death in the family, and it's remarkable how how many women were just able to do it. You know, it was a huge sacrifice of having any personal life. As you said, she didn't date. You know, she never had another date. That's that's a big sacrifice, you know, but you're taking care of your family. She must have been a remarkable woman. Is she still alive? Oh, no, no. My mother, um, and I'll tell that story a little later, perhaps in the conversation, she died during the beginning of the first, the second season of Voyager. Um, oh, so she died, uh, in, uh, December 10th, 1995. And I remember the episode we were shooting. Um, and she's just, uh, you know, we were all very close to her. My mother was one of those magical, and maybe a lot of, a lot of people feel this way about uh, either their, hopefully both parents, but either their father or their mother. We all thought we were secretly the mother's, my mother's favorite. Each one of us were deeply, <laughs> deeply um, convinced that she loved us the most. And when we finally compared notes after she'd gone away, <laughs> after she was gone, we couldn't figure out how she did it, how she made us each feel like the carefully and secretly the most prized and precious of her four children. <laughs> so you know, she that was a is genius. remarkable. Yeah, that's right. She was, because that's one of the trickiest things uh, I've I would imagine to do because mm -hmm. so many times people don't do that successfully. And there are these bitter rivalries in families. How are mm -hmm. you all with your sibling rivalry in your family? Oh, my, I get along great with my, we, we're also different. My, uh, my oldest sister was a longtime uh, medical school librarian, my sister, Kathy, mm -hmm. my brother, Joe, five years younger, is an interior designer. He worked, you know, he started out as a salesman in our furniture store. Then he worked at other, you know, um, higher end kind of furniture places as helping. And then he went back to school, uh, lived in my apartment. When I first left New York to go to Los Angeles, I had a, a very inexpensive rental apartment in New York. My brother moved in, went to Parsons 
I think, or the, the new school. Anyway, he went in Parsons School of Design and got a degree in interior design. And so he loves what he does. He's been, uh, you know, he's semi-retired now. Um, and his partner, Jonathan, is a fellow interior designer. They were like rival rivals. <laughs> <laughs> but I, their, their, uh, their homes, because they have a place in Philadelphia and a place in New York, are both absolutely beautiful because they're, they both have extraordinary taste. Uh, That's amazing. And then my sister, Marianne, who's the closest to me in age, is a psychiatrist. She, uh, I was the one who grew up thinking he was going to go to medical school because I was very influenced by my childhood uh, my pediatrician, Dr. Kuchanata, who was a very elegant man. I, I really thought he was great. And, uh, and I decided as a young man, I was going to become a pediatrician or a baby doctor, as I think I called him in my, you know, in my early, my preteens. And when, and that was my whole uh, ambition throughout um, high school. When I graduated high school and went off to college, I was a biology major at Yale uh, in pre-med, but I'd always acted sort of for fun as a sideline. So that kind of took right. over, but, but I did really my whole life, I thought I'd be a doctor. Then, of course, my, my, my mother took it with tremendous equanimity that I, that I, she wasn't going to have a doctor in the family. And I think what happened is my sister announced that she was going to be a doctor. So it took some perfect. of the pressure off. <laughs> no, it's perfect. You know, when going back to what you said about, I believe, one of your grandmothers or uh, who wanted to be the pharmacist, uh, I have- That was my mother, my, my mother. Mm -hmm. Right, that's your mother. Because mm -hmm. that's the one way in for women to get into the medical field was to go into pharmaceuticals because you could actually, if you were in a small enough village or town, you would end up being a quasi doctor because people would come to you with their problems and, and you could solve them maybe by what you would, uh, what the medications you would give them. But it certainly was a field that I think that was, that was the field that women entered the first they, because they knew they were going to have a harder time becoming a, a female doctor in a very male-dominated world. I, I want to jump to Yale, but, and then we'll go back to some other family things. I was in a relationship with a guy who was in the very first theater administration class at Yale Drama School. So I went up there all the time when I was teaching at Brandeis. I would be commuting there because we had known each other before when he had done law school, and, and I'd known him actually when he was at Harvard. What was amazing is going up to Yale I thought New Haven was such a beautiful campus, the Yale campus, and my favorite hamburger I ever had in my life was at Louis' lunch. D did you ever eat at Louis' lunch? Because was that still happening? Oh, of course, absolutely. Louis' lunch. I mean, uh, it was it was as if he invented the hamburger. I know he didn't, but it was <laughs> uh, it was the oldest continuously operating hamburger place, I think, in New Haven. I don't know if it still exists. I don't know. I think it may have moved. I think it had it's to move. It's moved and it's different. It was when the old guys were still doing it. And I'm I'm vegan now, but at that time, that was just the best thing I'd ever had. I could not um, get enough of it. And I loved all of the old machinery that would turn the toast around and do everything and the way they had the onions on the meat. It was like so... Awesome, it was served right? on for the benefit of the audience who never got to go to, uh, and I don't really eat beef anymore, but, uh, but I loved it, um, to go to Louis lunch. I believe it was served on toasted bread and Toast. it was buttered. Right. Was the, was the burger itself, did it have butter on it or did they butter no, the bread? What they did with the burger, the burger was, was 
cooked with very thinly sliced onions on it. So the onion flavor got into the burger. And it wasn't like huge pieces of onion. It was tiny, tiny pieces of onion. And then the cheese got melted on the bread. It, it was pretty, pretty awesome. Was Who was running the Yale Drama School when you were there as a student, undergraduate? Uh, it was uh, Robert Brustein when I was an un- undergrad, because I, I never went to the drama school. I was an undergrad. So Brustein was running it. And I believe... I believe that while I was there, it was either the year I graduated or right around that time, uh, Lloyd Richards took over for Brustein. So I, I was there for the transition. I was around all that time. So that's what's really interesting is I bet we ran into each other somewhere. Oh, sure. Sure. Well, I was an undergrad biology major, but I loved doing theater, which wasn't easy to do. So I worked with Meryl Streep. Which in productions? Two, I was in two cabaret shows with Merrill, plus I was in Stephen Sondheim's The Frogs in the Yale Gymnasium. I saw that. Pool. You did. I did. I actually saw that. Who did you play? I was in the chorus with Sigourney Weaver and Christopher Durang. Yeah. We were all wearing togas and Texas dirt. And uh, back then, you wouldn't recognize me. I not only had hair, I had more hair than you've ever seen on a male <laughs> head. I had a giant... Um, I don't know what they call an Afro on an Italian guy, but I had a, you know, my, the diameter of my hair at its peak was probably, I don't know, almost 30 inches. <laughs> like that. That's amazing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. No, that's so cool that we were there at the same time because, so I went to every production that was done in that Brewstein period. I went to the cabaret productions. I was there because every weekend I would come up from my teaching my classes and, you know, hang out with people. And that was when Meryl Streep did her Helena and, uh, yeah, all of the, all of them. I mean, I saw every single production. I saw that, um, that set, wasn't it amazing? The set for a Midsummer Night's Dream. Oh, oh yes. And that was, um, that was, uh, uh, God, playing Oberon was... Was Christopher Lloyd. I thought he was one of the most brilliant actors I had ever seen. His... Mm-hmm. Um, Oberon. I, oh, his Oberon. But then I'm thinking also of the Andrzej Schweider. Did you see The Possessed? By Andrzej Schweider, oh. the Polish director directed it. Christopher Lloyd was so brilliant. And the whole set production... Um, Alvin Epstein was extraordinary. It it blew my mind. I think it had a, a lasting impact on me uh, in, in terms of theater. Um, yeah, no, I was there all the time. In fact, I was introduced wrongly by some friends set to their parents during graduation saying, yes, she was a student here. And I'm like, no, no, I wasn't in the grad school. No, no, no. That was a great, I, I, another friend of mine uh, uh, who I ended up, I knew her briefly at Yale, uh, she had grown uh, to Harvard, graduated Radcliffe, and then spent a year at Yale just doing theater there. Uh, her name is Carol Potter. Mm. She played opposite me in yes. Gemini, my first Broadway show. So she, it wasn't unusual back then to become part of, uh, of the community. 
uh, at another, you know, at another university if you were dating someone as she was also. And she acted in a, in, in a number of shows at Yale just as a, That's you know, incredible. there was never a problem with her because she was so talented. She Did you ever perform in any of the, or you couldn't have no. stayed away that long from your teaching duties? I couldn't have stayed away. I was directing at Brandeis. Um, I think those were some of my most productive years, actually, as a director when I was at, uh, because I probably was inspired by the high level of work uh, I was witnessing at Yale. It was it was an extraordinary period, I thought. There were just so many things that were happening in theater. The, the Andre Gregory was doing his work. I, I lived on a street where it was the same street as Wally Shawn, Wallace Shawn. And, uh, you know, I... I saw his very first performance of Our Late Night in a classroom at NYU with Andre Gregory. And I, I think I was one of two audience members there. And it was in the classroom as Angela Pietro Pinto. Do you know Angela? You know any I of these people? I know her name, but I don't know. I, yeah. I don't, don't know her personally, no. It was just a really exciting time, that whole um, 10 years in... New York and New Haven. It was a uh, it was a great time for you to make the choice to uh, to plunge into acting. Do you remember the first thing you saw that made you just kind of get the bug? I'll, I'll answer two ways. First of all, I remember uh, sitting in our little family television room, probably in ninth grade, maybe eighth ninth grade, and uh, the Tony Awards were on in black and white. And there was a scene from The Great White Hope with James Earl Jones and Jane Alexander. Now, I did not, I was not a kid who grew up going to the theater. I mean, as of that age, I hadn't gone except in, you know, uh, school productions, I would see whatever was playing at school. I didn't know what the hell I was watching. I didn't, it didn't really, I mean, I must have known that there was such a thing as the Broadway theater or whatever, but I'm eighth or ninth grade and I, this scene starts to play out. Um, between uh, the, you know, back at the, they rarely do it now at the Tony Awards anymore. They almost always just do musical numbers, but this was a full-blown four-minute, highly dramatic scene um, mm. with James Earl Jones playing the boxer Jack Jefferson and uh, and and his white, you know, his white uh, common-law wife at a time when that was a big no-no. Having this big argument, even though they love each other so much because of you know, the situation and what, what the world is doing to their relationship. Anyway, I just went, I looked at the television, like, what the hell is this? Why I want to see, I want to see more of this. So that's the first time mm -hmm. I remember thinking, and it, of course it was on television, but it was clearly a theater production. So that arrested me. Meanwhile, uh, in, in, in school, in ninth grade, one of the, the sort of class clown, a guy named Bill Barker, who has spent his life, God bless him, playing, Thomas Jefferson in Colonial Williamsburg. That's a role he's played for the last 40 years and he plays it brilliantly. He, he's read everything wow. Jefferson ever wrote. He can impersonate, you can sit and talk to him for two hours as Thomas Jefferson and he wow. is just a font of history. Um, anyway, uh, back then we were classmates. He was sort of the, he was the sort of outsized, I believe it or not, I was kind of shy still in ninth grade or when, when he first forced me on stage to play opposite him in a, in a three character play. It was a, it was a comic melodrama called Box and Cox and Box and Cox was about two men. One worked by day, one worked by night and they both lived in the same apartment because the devious landlord uh, had rented it to them without telling, you know, 
the other one's existence. And then my character, who's sort of the uh, the middle class guy, one, the other guy is a printer and lower class, and I'm sort of the haberdasher. So I'm a little fay, and I sell you know gentlemen's accessories. Um, one day I get the day off, and we meet, and then it was a satire of all of the. Uh, the, the show was a satire of, of all of the ridiculous melodrama of its day. Coincidence after coincidence, it turns out that, you know, first we can't stand each other. We're forced to spend time together. Then it turns out we're engaged to the same woman. We both hate mm. the woman. Uh, he faked his death to get out of his engagement. Now that I found him, I'm going to force him to marry her. It was silly beyond belief. Anyway, we were a huge success uh, in this production at school. And that's what started me acting just because he forced me in it. He needed someone to play off of. And when I, you know, and he was, he played the funnier, broader character, but I got my own laughs and I thought, you know what? I like this. Yeah. Well, it's interesting getting laughs uh, when you're young for doing things that usually you would be chewed out for uh, on some <laughs> level. It's a very powerful thing. And you sort of, it's a freedom. Like what games did you play I don't know if you were an introvert or an extrovert. What do you think you were when you were um, young and what do you think you are now? Oh, I would say I'm, I'm pretty much of an extrovert now, but I think, I don't, um, I mean, I've heard theories. My sister is a psychiatrist. I could have been a little bit perhaps, you know, I was very much in my own world as a child. To give you an example, one day I came home about, I don't know, maybe 11 years old, and we had a color TV. And I went, where did that come from? Or when did we get that? And apparently around the dinner table for the last two weeks, they'd been talking about nothing but the color TV. And somehow I'd eaten dinner every night <laughs> with the family for two weeks and never heard a thing about the color TV. So I was in my own world yeah. is the way I was described. And it could have been, I mean, let's face it, when your father dies suddenly at nine years old, yeah. that that changed obviously the course, not only the course of my life, but in those, I remember feeling very alone uh, in some ways, especially on the weekend without, um, on a Sunday, I think I was, a Sunday mm -hmm. was homework day. I don't think you could see your friends. Mm -hmm. And my mother was always so busy because Sunday was the one day she got to kind of cook for the week or get ready because she was at work early Monday through Friday after he died. So I felt a little sorry for myself, I remember then. Right. And, and I'm sure that that, I really think it probably, so it was fourth grade when my father died. I would say from fourth through seventh grade, I probably was relatively shy. Maybe still mm -hmm. made my friends laugh, but was not, didn't, have this sort of extroverted class clown thing until after ninth grade when I joined, when my friend got me up on the stage and probably developed more confidence in myself as a, you know, in that re regard. I was always a very good student and I always loved to do things. I loved to write song parodies. I loved to write limericks. I was a great limerick writer back then, you know, and I used to compete with my teachers who were you know, for, for the best limerick. <laughs> <laughs> Did you feel jealous of your older siblings who might have had more time with your father? Um, perhaps, a, perhaps a little bit. I mean, my sister, who's only a year and a half older than me, I call the family historian. She remembers everything. And she'd be a little embarrassed thus far now that I didn't know exactly when all of my grandparents had landed, uh, you know, in, in, the, uh, in the new world. But 
I don't think, I don't think, I don't, uh, you know, I, I guess I felt bad that I didn't get to know my father longer. I, I have throughout my life when I pray for my father, I usually say, I wish I knew you better in my little prayer litany mm. at the end of the day. Um, and I still say that, and I'm a 67-year-old man now. Let me ask you, did, did you, do you dream, do you remember having dreams when you were a kid about your father after he had died? And do, oh, are sure. you a dreamer in general? You remember them? Oh, yeah. Yes. And, and some things, you, you know, it becomes deceptive. You don't know whether you're really remembering being there or witnessing it or people tell you of an event. One moment, I re my father never disappointed me and the poor man worked so hard and I would call him at work sometime mm -hmm. and say, daddy, you know, I want a wiffle ball. I need a wiffle ball or whatever because his store was only about a half a block away from a Woolworths style, you know, five and 10. I don't remember if it was Woolworths or whatever. But I wanted him to get me a wiffle ball. And my father would often, I remember one day he came home and he, he came in with his big, you know, he wore those big giant tweed houndstooth coats. So I remember his, you know, so it must've been winter. I don't know what I wanted a wiffle ball for then, maybe because I thought I could play with it inside, but it must've been cold. Exactly. He came in, I remember the big coat. I remember his big shoes because I used to shine his shoes sometimes to as a gift or to surprise him. And he, and we had a staircase, uh, that, that led right down to the front door. I mean, our house had a little tiny vestibule or mudroom, I guess, tiny. And then you stepped up two steps and you step. And so he opened the door from the vestibule. I looked down on this giant man in his big coat and said, did you get it, dad? Did you get, you know, the wiffle ball? And he, and he went, Oh, gee, I'm sorry, Bobby. I forgot. And then I looked and then I collapsed in disappointment and turned to walk up the stairs and he went, Hey, turned around and then he threw the ball to me. And that's um, the, that is the moment I remember of my father more than any other one. Um, it's beautiful. Other things, you know, we've talked over the years, my father used to eat stale bread. We had a special drawer in the kitchen that he kept his incredibly stale Italian bread in because he'd grown up too poor to buy the fresh bread. They always got the stale bread at the bakery. And then he had that taste his whole life. He loved stale bread. For Lent every year, my father gave up his favorite thing in the world, which was pasta. We had pasta at least twice a week and he would give it up for Lent and we couldn't eat at the same time because it, we thought it would make him feel bad. So he would eat separately from us during Lent so that he, at least That's when we amazing. had pasta. That's amazing. Now, what did you give up? I want to know what you gave up for Lent. I'll tell you what I gave up. What What did you give as up? As a kid, I always gave up candy, except that as a child, we were allowed to break it on Sundays. So you really only gave up candy six days a week, and then you were allowed to eat candy <laughs> on Sundays. As I got older, I used to, um, uh, I would give, I still give up candy every year. Now I give up candy and desserts, sugar, you know, any kind of cake or brown. I mean, the sweet, I'll eat like yogurt maybe that, that, that is sweetened. So I'm, I can't say I give up sugar completely, but I give up desserts, candy, hard liquor. If I were really great, I'd give up all liquor. That seems, you know, that's a conversation God and I have to have to, to give that up for 40 days and 40 nights. For a while, I gave up red meat until I started giving it up all the time. I used to give right. up red meat for Lent. What about you? 
Right. Well, no, I gave I gave up things like chewing gum and uh, things that I really loved to have every day. Uh, and I would give up candy or my favorite ice cream. I would try to give up as many things like that. Do you remember the the first confession you ever had, you ever made? Oh, oh my yeah. God. I mean, that was was that not theater or what? That was like so profoundly intimate, theatrical, everything at the same time. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think the world, if you're a non-Catholic, guys, if you're listening and you're a non-Catholic, or, or even if you're a lapsed Catholic, you're still going to remember what we're talking about. But if you're Absolutely. a non-Catholic, confession, for the benefit of those, is, uh, is it depending on how you look at it, is, is maybe one of the greatest, greatest things about being a Catholic, or it's one of the weirdest things, depending on which point of view. But basically, you uh, go into a little private area with a priest. He's usually on the other side of a screen and he slides the little screen door open and you say, bless me, Father, for I've sinned. And then you talk about how long it's been since the last time you confessed. And then you basically catalog all of your failings, all of the things you've done wrong. And as a little kid, it's like, you know, oh, I kicked the cat or I, 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 I hit my sister or I, well, I used know, to I, get into I used to get into things like even if I had a bad thought against my brother, <laughs> you know, it was yeah. like because he would always say even if you've had a negative bad thought towards someone else, we uh, we want to know about this. And you just see the face. There's this little screen that slides open, and you just see this close up. It's like a close up um, on a TV because that's what it feels like when you're little. This this big man's face, and it's just you see his his little bit of a beard maybe, or not beard, but the shadow of his whiskers. And then you're intimately, you're talking to him very softly. It's this very private thing. You're saying, and I I disobeyed my parents one time, you know, and then he gives you your penance. And that, I was always so proud to get my penance. You know, I'd walk out mm -hmm. and, and, and sort of it was this public display, even if you were very, you were praying in front of the altar and everyone else could see how long you prayed, like how bad you were at the altar. I always thought that was interesting, you know. So so sometimes if I hadn't been given a long penance, I would deliberately stay longer so they might think I was more interesting and bad. You could bar, yeah. I remember being so successfully guilt-ridden that one priest in confession asked me if I had considered entering the cloth, if I consider being a priest. Oh, that's right. I remember I that about thought you. I, was, I do remember, uh, this is a good time for a joke. This is Ethan Phillips, one of my favorite joke tellers of all time. Tells mine this too, is a, mine this is too, a come on. This is a confession joke, all right? I hope I'm not offending anybody. But uh, uh, the, the um, this uh, little petite, uh, tremulous nun goes into confession. She goes, oh, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I, I feel, I, and he goes, calm down, sister. And she goes, I just, I feel so, I can't, well, Father, I can't, I, I, and she says, he says, calm down. Whatever it is you've done, I'm sure it can't be that bad. And she goes, Father, I don't like the feel, I don't, I hate the feeling of, I don't like wearing underwear, Father, and I, I, I have no, I don't have any panties on it. I, I, I have nothing on it at all under, under this, uh, under my habit. And, and, he, and the father says, well, gee, now what? That wasn't so bad, now was it? It wasn't nearly as bad as you think it is. So uh, for your penance, sister, I want you to do uh, two Hail Marys, uh, two Our Fathers, and uh, and two cartwheels as you pass the altar. That, um, <laughs> anyway, it's, uh, I, I said it was a little bad taste, but that's Ethan Phillips, ladies and gentlemen. Don't blame me, okay? That is Ethan Phillips. <laughs> so my favorite, all right, so my favorite Catholic joke that I think it was Michael Dorn who told me, so a nun has been so good all of her life and 
when she dies, she goes up to the uh, St. Peter at the gates of heaven and he says, you can, you're here, you're in heaven, you can see anyone you want and, and be anyone. Oh, oh, I want to see the Virgin Mary. That's who I want to see. I want to see the Virgin Mary. I've been looking at her all, all my life and I, I want to see her. And he said, well, she's over there. So she goes to see the Virgin Mary, the mother of Jesus. And she says, oh, please tell me everywhere I've looked, your paintings, your statues, you look so sad. You look so sad. Why do you look so sad? And the Virgin Mary says... I wanted a girl, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. <laughs> I just love that one. All right, enough with the jokes. We <laughs> I thought that uh, one was great. One more. Can I do one more? This is Joe. Well, this well, is Joe uh, Pantoliano, right. my buddy Joey Pants. Very fast. Okay. He told right. me this joke. Okay, I love Joey. So we've been friends forever. So Joey, uh, here's how it goes. Uh, uh, Christ goes up to uh, the gates of heaven. He says, hey, he says, St. Peter, you watch the gate every day, day in, day out. Why don't you take an afternoon on? And Peter goes, Jesus, thanks. And he goes off, you know, to take. And so Jesus is watching, is at the gates all day and people are coming up and he's, you know, and uh, he's asking them as they come in uh, what kind of life they've led, whatever. Um, late, late, late that day, um, uh, Jesus sees an old man who looks very familiar and he, and and uh, he says, "Yes, old man, can I help you?" And the and the old man says, "Yes, I'm a carpenter, and I'm looking for my son." And Jesus peers deeply into his eyes, and he says, "Father," and the old man says, "Pinocchio." <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Right, I love it. All right, joke, All right, joke so hour is over. But thank you for letting me do that. Those are my two favorite. Oh, absolutely! Uh, I love jokes, and I did a, a tutorial with Ethan Phillips on joke telling. By the way, he'll tell you he he, he was so wonderful, and uh, I I now can tell. Jewish jokes and <laughs> Catholic jokes and <laughs> Irish jokes and whatever. Um, not as good as he can do it, but he's he's the expert. Think about, I want to know what you did when you were growing up and you were naughty. What is the naughtiest thing you ever did um, and got in trouble for? And what would happen when you got into trouble? Well, I would injure myself. I was a clumsy kid, really clumsy. Um, I remember playing football with my new helmet and I ran uh, into, I couldn't see too well with the helmet. So I ran full speed into one of the metal poles that my mother suspended the clothesline from and cracked oh my, my new helmet. So I hit it. It was, oh a, it was a kid's toy helmet, but I hit it that hard and I knocked myself out. Oh um, my God. I remember I, I, I used to try to whittle with a, with a knife uh, even though my mom knew that I was too clumsy to handle a knife and whittling soap, I, of course, cut this junk chunk of my finger off and had to go to the oh emergency God. room. I oh remember uh, in our back door, we had a back door that had a latch, an extra latch. It had a conventional, you know, slide latch, I guess, in the middle, but it had a very high up latch near the top of the door. And as a kid, I would try to jump to slide the latch over because I was not quite tall enough to reach it. So I had to have been at least, I don't know, seven or eight or nine even to reach high enough. Well, I impaled my finger, I remember, on the curtain rod at the top of the door, <laughs> oh, tore my finger open and had to go to the emergency room again. So I was uh, I was known for being a clod uh, as a kid. Wow. But you never did things where she would say, 
don't like, don't you do this? Don't anyone do this? You know, your mother didn't have to be that kind of a disciplinarian in your family where. Well, she would do that. She would say, don't do this. But that's what I meant. You said, what did I get in trouble for when I did things I wasn't supposed to do? (laughs) Oh, my God. But that's like mortal danger. Um, But that's bad as it got. I do remember um, going at maybe ninth grade. I used to spend a week or two down the shore with my friend, Mark Bryce, whose family had a house in Stone Harbor. And Mark was a young surfer. He's surfed his whole life. And I and I would body surf while he was off surfing. And I do remember a, a young woman who was about my age, maybe a year or two older, so she was 13 or 14 or 15, let her surfboard, it got away from her and hit me in the head. So I have a scar oh, here oh, my, my whole God. life from this woman, this young woman's surfboard hitting me at full speed right next to my eye and could have blinded me. Oh my God. So I'm lying there bleeding on the beach, rolling around, and she goes, are you okay? And it's like, what do you say to someone when they just hit you with the surfboard? You know, I bleed this time every day. No, I mean, you hit me in the head and I'm bleeding. So they took me to the local hospital. And I'll never forget this story. My mother told me later, because my mother had very recently, get this folks, my father had passed away. She'd taken over the family business. The reason I was down the seashore with my friend's family was because all of the neighbors kind of go, oh, I feel bad for the kid who lost his father. So if you're close friends with their kid, they take you away for a week of the summer. So my mother was working away and she and my aunt Mary, my father's sister who worked at the store, my mother comes up from making herself lunch down in the little kitchenette down in the basement of the store. And my aunt Mary says, Oh, Myra, we got a call from some hospital in Sea Isle City, and they said that your son was there bleeding. And I said, you don't know anybody there, and hung up. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) My aunt didn't know, didn't know that I was down the shore, right? Because what would I be doing at 12 or 13 away from my mother? So she literally just said, no. That's funny. And then, of course, I got the word at the other end that, yeah, that nobody remembered me. I was, I'm lying in the hospital bleeding. It's like, well, we called the number you gave us for your mother, but uh, nobody there seems to know. So. Oh, that's terrible. You know, let's talk about Stone Harbor a little bit, though, because I don't know if you spent much more time there, but that was where I would become the sort of governess of the two kids of my headmaster who were both, um, one of them was four and the other one was about seven. And so for a couple of years, I would go, they had a a house they would rent on one of those streets that there were a million houses that looked the same. I think they're called cottages, really. But the beaches there were phenomenal. And I was 13 and 14 years old. And I had never in my life seen you're walking the beach and you see one gorgeous man after another up in the lifeguard chair. Oh my (laughs) God in heaven. I could not believe it. And so I would force these little kids to walk three miles, you know, so I could see every single lifeguard. And then, and it was really one of the most um, growing up with boys feelings, not that I, anything happened with these lifeguards, but cause they all thought I was older, but they would sort of, they, cause you were the whole tall, deal was, right. You were the, if you were right, three inches right. taller than someone your age, <laughs> they're all in college, the lifeguards, and they would point to you. And then they'd say, they would give a little finger like, come here. And they'd get down off their perch and they were allowed to take these breaks talking to you. Well, you can imagine how how Mm -hmm. not fun it was for the four-year-old and the seven-year-old. And meanwhile, my heart is just like, I am 
thrilled. I am like, oh my God, he's so cute. He's talking to me, you know, and then eventually they all realized how young I was and they were like, oh, never mind. You know, we won't waste our time. But it was, it was a major time for me. And, and also just that whole thing of, they used to spray for, for bugs going down the street mm-hmm. with huge sp- uh, trucks that just sprayed. All of us were getting the DDT in our lungs and I'd be out eight hours, dawn to dusk, putting baby oil on. Uh, that's why I am so careful now about going out in the sun because I just, if anyone's a candidate for skin cancer, it would be me. Oh my God. Well, we had a, we had similar experiences down there. I remember going when I was as, I probably, I was as young as, uh, oh gosh, maybe 12, 13, when I first started going to Stone Harbor, 12, 13, 14. But I think I went... I remember going there at like 15 and they had a dance on Friday. They had like a public building and there was a dance there. Do you remember that? And you would hear a whiter shade of pale. I wasn't allowed to go out at night, really. That Mm -hmm. was, I was the, I could see the guys on the beach. I I think I had maybe two dates um, Mm -hmm. when I was 14, maybe, but they weren't really dates. Well, this was a big, you know, kind of a pay 50 cents or whatever and go in. And of course there's no alcohol at all because they're all kids and all that. It was basically just... You know, they were playing loud music over some PA system and people were dancing and the girls were on one side and the boys on the other side. I I was, uh, my friend was much more, what's the word, um, savvy about girls at that age, 14, 15, than I was. I, I sort of just watched watched him and tried to learn. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, these lifeguards, the one time I was invited to a party, it was by this one lifeguard who was from Philly. And he's the one who introduced me musically, just from talking on the beach, to all of Smokey Robinson, all of the Motown, everything, and and all, and James Brown, who became one of my big heroes. Um, but they were very protective of me because they knew I was young. So that was like when I was 14, there was some party that they used to make cocktails in garbage cans. They would buy new garbage cans and people would just dig, put their glass in you know, like a a garbage can full of stingers, which I wasn't (laughs) drinking at all. So I didn't even know what they tasted like. But I remember always being pushed away. Like I was only there for like, you know, half an hour to say hi to people or something. And then I would be taken back to where I had to work because I had to babysit at night because the people I was working for would go out. I remember that period as the time when I really got interested in boys. Well, see, the uh, anybody who grew grew up on the you know, roughly, roughly in that part of the country, we all remember the Jersey Shore. And so ends part one of Investigates with Robert Picardo. Next week, Bob regales me with some wonderful stories and thoughtful conversation. Join us for part two as things get really interesting. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, take care.